Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not and you have not treated me as my sins deserve, but rather you have laid on Christ the punishment that my sins deserved. Thank you that you loved us enough to send Jesus into the world to be a saviour for sinners. To save and to restore that which you created us for, for a relationship with you, to enjoy the almighty God, all of his blessings. And Lord, we, we pray as we look to Jesus this morning that we might see and capture something of his heart for the people in this world, the people that we rub shoulders with on a daily basis. Lord, we thank you for the grace you have shown us in Christ, a grace that is to be shared. Help us to hear, help me to speak clearly and to be led by your spirit, that we might not hear Steve's words, that we might hear your words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you ever hear about this man, Pastor Jeremiah Stepak? He was hired to pastor of a church in the United States, a church of the congregation of around about 10,000 people. But on the day that he arrived, that he was to be appointed, he chose to make himself appear like a homeless man. He arrived 30 minutes before everybody else and it's said that of the roughly 7,000 who turned up on that morning, three bothered to say hello to him. He asked for change to buy food. Yet in this very large church, nobody offered him a cent. During the service, the elders came up to the stage to announce that their new pastor was being appointed today. And they called out his name and he came up to the stage. And you can just imagine the silence. Particularly those who had said no to helping out this man. He took to the stage. He opened up his scriptures and said from Matthew 25, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He looked up from his Bible and he said, The world has enough people but it has too few disciples of Jesus Christ. When will you become disciples of Jesus Christ, he said. Talk about a mic drop moment. But guess what? It never happened. Now, you might have seen this picture, you might have heard their story. It did the floods all around social media back in about 2013 but it was a fictitious story. That guy is a homeless person. That's not his name that, we, that I announced him as being. It was a guy, homeless person. It was a photo taken by a photographer named Brad Gerard, taken in London. But it spread like wildfire. 
People would read it and think, no, how can this happen in a church? But then they shared it around and they believed it because they believed, I can imagine that could happen in a church. It shocked people because this shouldn't happen. Christians shouldn't respond to people that way. But they believed it because they knew in their hearts that could happen in their very own churches. Last week we were originally supposed to do chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, but when I got to verse 13 to 17, I thought, I need to spend a bit more time here. I think we need to spend a bit more time here. Jesus was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why? Am I, should I, be called a friend of sinners? As we opened up Mark's Gospel, we saw Jesus introduced as the Son of God, the one who is fully God, who is the the anointed King, the Messiah, the one who stood alongside and identified sinners in his baptism, the one who came, who would die on the cross on behalf of those who dishonoured him. And then as we saw, we saw this was not just a claim that people were making about Jesus. He expressed an authority in his teaching and in his actions as he healed and cast out demons like people said they'd never seen before. Last week, as we saw a group of four men who were so desperate to bring a paralysed man to Jesus, but the home was full, they couldn't get there, so they went on the roof. They started ripping apart the roof. They thought, I have to get this man to Jesus. This man needs to be healed, we presume, was was their assumption. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. What they perceived to be his greatest need wasn't his greatest need. His greatest need was to be made right with God as it is the greatest need for every single one of us. Now Jesus was never someone who had difficulty attracting crowds. In fact, we saw that at times Jesus saw them to be a hindrance. It said that because of the crowds, he couldn't enter any town openly because people would just flock around and give us another shine, to give us another show. But despite the fact that he had crowds wanting him to perform and do things in a particular way, he never conformed to the expectation of the crowds or the people. He always conformed to the expectation and the will of his heavenly Father. And today is just one example of one of that in motion. So as we work our way through just these short number of verses, we're going to ask the question, who do you see? Who gets your attention? Who will you spend time with? Why would someone spend time with sinners? And lastly, are you a friend of sinners? Now, we should define our terms too because often when people hear the word sinner, they think murderer, someone who does something really, really despised and despicable. But the term simply means to miss the mark, to not be what you're supposed to be. So a sinner is, the world is full of really nice, lovely sinners. I was one. Oh, maybe I wasn't one of the nice ones. But it means to not recognise and honour God as God. 
Who do you see? That's where we're starting. The passage begins with a familiar scene. He's out again beside the sea. All the crowds coming to him. Happens everywhere he goes. Jesus goes, the crowds follow. Now it doesn't say what their motive was, whether they were there hoping he might do a miracle or some sign. But regardless of what they expected of him, what he gave them was he, is the very thing he said he came to do. That was to preach and to teach that he spoke back in chapter 1, verse 38. But look, here he is. He's got the crowds. He's got religious Jews who love him. They're excited about him. All around him, you think, he couldn't have a better audience. Who better for Jesus to have around him? Yet in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke, they don't even bother mention the interaction with the crowd at all. And in Mark's account, gives most of the time to one individual. And in Matthew and Luke's account of the same event, give all of their time to Jesus' interaction with this one individual. Surrounded by crowds of admiring followers, wanting him to do something exciting, Jesus saw Levi. Now, in the first century, it was quite common that people would have multiple names. For example, Peter often gets called Simon. So often gets called Cephas. When you read the account in Matthew, Matthew 9, chapter 9, of the same thing, it is his name is described as being Matthew. This is the very same Matthew who becomes one of the 12 disciples who, incidentally, wrote the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. So these are all the things that were were to transpire over time. But right here, right now, this is just Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. Now, highlighting him as a tax collector is not just incidental information for those who thought, I wonder what this guy does for a job. It says something about who he was and where he stood in the overall standing of society. Like You and I, we might not like paying taxes. If you do, you might be a little bit weird. But it wasn't just so much people didn't like paying taxes. Tax collectors were amongst the most despised people in that culture. When Jesus was surrounded by people who were excited about him, he focused his attention on this one that all of that crowd would have despised. What were some of the thoughts they had about tax collectors? Well, firstly, because he dealt with the Romans, who were by nature Gentiles, they would consider them to be unclean. It was written in some of their traditions that if a tax collector touched your house, your whole house was defiled. They were considered to be traitors because they were Jewish people collecting money from Jews to pay it to the Roman Empire who'd come in and forcibly taken over their land. They were known to be dishonest. In the Mishnah, which is the Jewish writings of some of the oral traditions of the rabbis at the time, said they were known to take payments by force and they could set whatever amount they wanted. They would actually bid to the, to the Roman Empire for the for the, I suppose, for the contract 
to do tax collecting for a particular area, and they could charge whatever they liked. So it was a real, it was a greedy money-making thing, stealing from Jewish people to give to the Romans, often taking things by force. As a result, they were not a valid witness in court. You bring in a tax collector, your word, not listening. They were not allowed into the synagogues at all. They were shamed and disowned by their own family. And the Bible's very clear, you don't lie. But written in the Mishnah, those Jewish rabbinic traditions, it says, but you can lie to tax collectors. That was the exception to the rule. They are so low, I know you're not supposed to do this, but you can do it to them because they are filth. To give us some idea of how they were perceived in society, I suppose the modern day equivalent might be the way in which a pedophile might be seen in our society today. And yet despite the crowds all around him, Jesus' attention went to this one man. They would have been shocked that Jesus even acknowledged this guy existed. Then he spoke to him, and he didn't just speak to him, he says, follow me. They would have thought, this guy does not deserve to be anywhere near Jesus. And Jesus says to him, follow me, and he gets up and immediately he follows Jesus. Jesus didn't do what all the religious people around him were doing that would have just overlooked him, kept him out of sight. He engaged him, he invited him. What would you have done? Would have you have been the person who avoided eye contact? Sort of take the, the wide berth around so you don't have to even acknowledge that they exist? If you were Jesus, would you have seen the crowds coming to you and just get puffed up with prayer and saying, man, they're all here for me? Or would you see that tax collector? Would you see that sinner? Have compassion upon them and engage with them. Who will you spend time with? That's the question of verses 16 to 15 and 16. Jesus didn't just acknowledge him. He invited to follow him. He became part of the, the 12 most inside followers of Jesus, the 12 disciples who were there alongside Jesus for those three years of his public ministry. And now he's dining, having dinner with him. Now this is just more than just casually saying, yeah, I'll meet you down at KFC for a bucket. In the first century, to get involved in hospitality was the, the richest expression of friendship that there could be. And here was Jesus amongst this guy that everyone looked down as being the scum of the earth. But it's not just that Levi who's there. Some of Levi's friends are there. And because of the way in which people perceive tax collectors, these weren't the upstanding members of society that would have been Levi's friends because the outstanding members of society, so to speak, would have had nothing to do with Levi. It would be Levi and his fellow outcasts, those that people look down upon. Is this where you would expect to find the perfect and holy, righteous Son of God? Is this a scenario where you'd ever expect to find yourself in? 
Now, we don't know the details of the other people who were there other than the Pharisees on looking describe them as being tax collectors and sinners. Just that broad term for those who will not honour God as God. Let me just use a bit of creative licence for a moment. Set the scene. Pretend this is a dinner happening in Toowoomba 2021. Over here, you've got a same-sex couple who are major activists in that arena. Over here, you've got an ex-prisoner. Over here, you've got a drug dealer. Over here, you've got a pedophile. Over here, you've got a hooker. And there's Jesus in the middle of it. He's not concerned about his reputation. What if that was you or I in that setting? What if it was a restaurant in Margaret Street and the seating was outside and your friends were parked? Would you be concerned about your reputation? Would you live a life where even a scenario like that would even be remotely possible? Or do you think, no, I'm going to avoid people who aren't like me unless, in case they defile me in some way? Because if you think you're too holy to spend time with people like this, then you better tell Jesus that you're more holy than he is. Jesus didn't have a fear about being in the presence of sinners, as though somehow that was going to defile his perfect holiness. Rather, he had confidence in who he was. And he expected that his holiness would actually be transformative in that environment, not the other way around. That it would shine a light in that dark place. Brothers and sisters, do you only spend time with people who are like you? Who say things the way you do, have the same worldview, same morals, same ethics, do everything the way you do, they're comfortable followers and disciples of Jesus Christ do we follow to the extent that we are willing to go into uncomfortable places unfamiliar places where people speak differently they live differently they might have different morals than you and I still people created in the image of God well let me take it from another different and more personal angle to examine your heart What would be your preference? Ten new people to come to Eastgate Bible Church who've just moved to the town or or moved in from another church or three new people come to Eastgate Bible Church who might be like these people that we have just described but who want to hear about Jesus. In your heart of hearts, which one would you truly desire? And if these three people did come along, Would they feel loved in the way in which Levi and his mates did in the presence of Jesus? Or would they feel like the Pharisees who were watching on? These people don't belong here. What are they doing here? There's no denying that Jesus actively sought out sinners. Actively sought out people who don't honour him. But why? Why? Well, luckily, we don't need to speculate why. Because the Pharisees asked the question in verse 16 of why is he hanging out with Pharisees, sorry, with tax collectors and sinners? 
Well, it would be a fair question to say, why is he hanging out with Pharisees? That's not what it says. But Jesus gives an answer which should rattle our complacency to the core. Now, in a moment, we will talk about right and wrong reasons or motives to spend time with people who are different than ourselves. But you can rule out any notion that Jesus is just hanging out so he can be accepted, be, you know, he can be the cool, the cool guy in town. This is the same Jesus who was very serious what he was about. His opening words we've seen in Mark, now is the time. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's like, now's the time. Turn and believe. He believed he had a very urgent message. And it's clear in his response to the Pharisees what he was about. He didn't even mind or get embarrassed about the fact that he spoke about these people in front of them. Jesus, when he heard their question about why are you hanging out with these people, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick... But, sorry, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He takes the medical analogy, he's like, it's people who are unwell who need a doctor. Like, if I have the cure for the greatest problem of mankind, that they aren't in a right relationship with God, then it makes sense that I would go to those people. He says, I haven't come to those who think they're all good, like the Pharisees who are off whinging off in the the background. He came to these people who were the outcasts. They knew they were sinners. They didn't need to be told. They knew. They knew they weren't right before God. They owned it. They accepted it. And Jesus had compassion upon them. He went to them and spent time amongst them. Now, the religious Pharisees, they thought Jesus should avoid them at all costs as though he's going to be defiled. But let's, let's go with Jesus' doctor analogy here for a moment. Imagine a doctor who would only consult healthy patients. Says, no, 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 no. So you've got a bit of a sniffles there. Come back when you're feeling a little bit better. Or a hospital that would only take people who are fully well. No, I, I see that limb on the ground over there, but you fit that back on and you get it better, then you can come back and see me. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need the cure, it's those who realise that they are not right. Things aren't right before God. And every single one of us are born that way. I was born that way. I was like, I'm doing whatever I want. I don't care if you say there's a God. I'm doing whatever I want. I'm not going to acknowledge him. I don't care if he's given me all this nice stuff. It's nice, good on him, but I don't want anything to do with him. And I said that in very violent terms in my growing up years. wonder how the people of this church, a church that has in its core values evangelism that is missional, would feel if the people who Jesus dined with came into this building this morning? Or would we secretly prefer to have more people who are already like who we are? When we say we love Jesus, we should love and care about the things that he cares about and loves. We live in a world full of people who were sinners, that is, those who do not honour God, who are made in the image of God, 
who have been corrupted from being what we were made to be, to live under the rule of a perfect, good and loving king and in a relationship with him that was broken by our disobedience and rebellion. But that cure is this man, Jesus Christ, who came. Not to give us what we deserve, but to bear on the cross the punishment that my sins deserve, that all of our sins deserve, and rose on the third day in victory. Jesus cared enough about the problem that the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He shed his own blood in this cruel torture of a Roman crucifix for a people who were hostile towards him, who hadn't honoured him. And yet his followers, we have people who are concerned that it's an inconvenience for me to spend time with people who are different than me. What about my reputation? I'm thankful my doctor doesn't turn me away when I'm unwell. Doctors are supposed to help the sick. Disciples of Jesus are supposed to care and notice, to love and be a friend of sinners. You have the cure. But unlike the medical situation where you're like, oh, I've got this medical problem, I'm going to go see a doctor, most of us, we're blind to the fact that we've got something wrong. And they will remain blinded until someone shows them their condition and the cure. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wonderful, we love that, don't we? But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they here without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And no, that's not why I tend not to wear shoes throughout the week. If you see my feet, you know that's not a true statement. You have been sent. The Great Commission by nature means all of us are a sent people. Sure, we've sent Samuel out for a specific ministry at Flooding Creek, but all of us are sent out as ambassadors of Christ, reconciling people to God. If we only gravitate to other Christians, then we are by nature a sent people who stubbornly refuse to be sent. Yes, we need one another. Yes, we need to build one another up. Yes, we need to gather together. Yes, we need to spend time with other believers. In fact, when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, you'll find that he spent far more time with the disciples and more time in prayer before the Father than he does with these other people. But he doesn't overlook them. Like he says to the the disciples in chapter 3, our next chapter we'll be looking at, he says, and he showed his disciples that he called apostles that he might be with them and send them out. So the question is, is there any room in your life to be a friend to sinners? It would be foolish not to address some wise and unwise applications of this, and there have been both. There are some people who with very sincere hearts have made some pretty poor decisions. And it's wise that we protect one another from that. 
But I think there's two things we need to think about in terms of being a friend of sinners. One is your heart motive and second is the nature of your engagement. Your heart motive, like Jesus, must be one of compassion. One who desires people to be, to be made well, to be restored to God, to know the joy of a, a relationship with him. A pure motive that's got no desire for anything else. I've encountered people who think, Jesus tells me to be a friend of sinners, therefore I'm going to go hang out with sinners because the more I spend time with sinners, the more I feel better about my sin because they're worse than I am. So, so I can just kind of overlook my own sin. And if you do that, to kind of ignore dealing with your own sin, then stop. Being a friend of sinners doesn't mean endorsing or participating and enjoying their sin. I've encountered some who see it as an opportunity to like, if I do this ministry, I can say it's under the banner of evangelism and I get to enjoy all this stuff that I know I shouldn't do, but hey, it's how I reach them. If you tell me that you're hanging out with drug addicts, shooting up heroin, taking drugs to be a friend of sinner like Jesus, you are not. You are not being like Jesus. You're feeding your fleshly desires and disgracing the name of Jesus in the process. Jesus went to sinners out of compassion. He genuinely loved them. He wanted what was best for them. But you don't think for a second that he decided that he'd flirt around in the sins in which they were involved in. He loved the people. He shared with the people. He taught the people. He wanted them and he urged them to believe and turn. Not every opportunity to be a friend of sinners is wise. I've said that even Jesus spent the bulk of his time amongst the disciples. Like you'll come back, you'll do something with the crowds and you'll come back and you'll share, share amongst them. It's not wise to have your closest and most regular contacts as sinners. You want people around you who are going to encourage you in the right thing. But at the same time, nor did he avoid or make derogatory aspersions about them. He kind of engaged with them like a proactive, compassionate physician. Imagine if that actually happened, that people would walk walk down the streets and they kind of pick up on symptoms and they just offered people help in a medical sense. You'd, I think I'd actually be sus. I'd be like, show us your medical qualifications for starters. But you and I are not Jesus. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. You and I have weaknesses. In my past, I used to have struggles with alcohol. To enter into a ministry where I think I'm going to go do a ministry down at a pub or a homebrew club would not be a wise setting for me to do that. And in any ministry like this, you want people around you who are praying for you. Not only praying for you for those conversations, 
people who will speak honestly to you can say, hang on, I think you're actually, you're becoming more like them rather than becoming more like Jesus. Every person, regardless of what their background looks like, has been made in the image of God and is not outside the scope of the grace of God. I could list a whole things from my own personal past. I've shared some of those in previous messages. I'm not going to do that right here and now. But I can tell you, regardless of your past, the grace of Jesus is sufficient. The crowds and religious people, they were shocked that Jesus engaged with this guy. And he says, I've come for the sick. I've come to be a saviour. That's what the angels announced. A child has been born. It would be good news for all people. A saviour. Christ Jesus the Lord. Sadly, I've encountered lots of people who think that they are too sinful to ever come to God. And you know what? One of the reasons why a lot of people think that is because that's the impression they have received from Christians. They're like, if I've been cast aside by Christians, if I'm not good enough for them, how am I ever going to be good enough for God? That's a sad reality when somebody can say that about a church experience that they've had. Yesterday we were at a house of a, a friend of mine. They live out in Rockville. They are very passionate about sharing the gospel. They're very caring. The people who live in their street, it's only a, a very small court. They've had three households where people have come to faith through them being there. And it's a rough street. There have been all sorts of things that have happened around there, but they believe the gospel is the good news of what God has done, the power of God for salvation. God is still saving sinners. And last week we were reminded from 2 Corinthians 5. We are his ambassadors. It is God who makes his appeal through us. I just want to close with something from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He says, I have told you what is of first most important, that Jesus Christ died for sinners you know who needs to hear that if the best and most important thing is that christ died for sinners the people who that is best news for are those who are who would be sinners those who haven't honored god and haven't come to experience the joy of knowing him will you be a friend of sinners let's close in prayer heavenly father I confess that I'm certainly not separate from the things that we have spoken this morning, that I know at times that I have avoided people or circumstances and I don't take any joy in that. It's to my shame that I would choose personal comfort, personal preference at times. God, I thank you that you didn't 
wait until I was living a life that was the way that you would have it to be lived before you would engage with me. While we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We thank you that you don't die for those who can make themselves good enough, but we thank you that your saving work is good enough to transform even the lowest of low. And you don't just save us, Lord. We get to be your children. We get to enjoy you. We get to to commune with you. And we also get the joy of carrying on your mission that's sharing that wonderful good news that we have received with others who are yet to receive it. And so, Lord, um, we, we thank you for that privilege. And the way I send myself and all of us out with that wonderful mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.